Hey everybody and welcome to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. In past episodes, we talked about the majesty of the M1 helmet. And so on the first half of today's episode, we are going to go deep into the world of M1 helmets. And joining us on the phone now is a man named Joshua Murray. And I've yet to talk to Joshua. I'm very excited too, but I assume he's a lot like me and he got bitten by the M1 helmet bug. So uh, let's talk M1 helmets with Joshua. Joshua, how are you doing tonight? Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How is Stephen Points, Wisconsin tonight? Looks like it's pretty damn cold there right now. It is pretty cold, actually. Uh, We didn't have a hard winter, but spring has taken a sweet time getting here. Yeah, I have a lot of family in Kentucky, and they're uh, trying to mow the grass one day and and clear the driveway the next from all the snow. I've heard that. So I see you got your uh, business started in 2000, but I want to go back a little further than that. Um, Sure. What got you bitten by the M1 bug? You know, I was was thinking about that and, and anticipating you asking me that. And, you know, I think it started... When I was about six years old, I remember, it, it's kind of a funny story, but I remember sitting in Sunday school class, and for some reason, my, my grandpa came down and was sitting in on the class, and the topic came up of, of uh, being in the Army. And I said, well, my grandpa was in the, in the Navy in, in World War II, and everyone, all the kids in the class, like, rubbernecked over to him and were like, Really? And so then he started telling some stories. And I remember that kind of being the point where I was like, you know, military military history and veterans and all that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. His, his specific story, it's funny because it's, 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 a, it's a massive embellishment, but he said that the fog, he was on a, on, a, on a destroyer, and he said the fog was so thick that you could cut shapes in it with a knife. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, and that's kind of amazing. I mean, back then, the ships were relying pretty much strictly on radar at that point. I mean, when the fog is that thick that one would embellish, you could cut it shapes into it. But that also means you can't see the ship that's 20 yards, 100 yards to your right or left. I mean, and to rely strictly no. on radar at that time and guys with binoculars, it kind of goes to show you the amount of effort and training and the skill that went into just manning those vessels. Yeah, actually, they um, their destroyer in fog rammed into a Greek freighter, Ooh. and they had to dry dock for about ninety days in um, somewhere in North Africa, and I can't remember the name of the place. But he said that it ripped the whole front of their destroyer right off, and they had to get it repaired. And then that actually that actually put their ship back stateside. And then once it was stateside, they were fitted with. Um, quad the quad 50 machine guns so that they could when they went over to the pacific they would have something to defend themselves against kamikaze so it's kind of interesting listening to him to him talk about that stuff how long was his vessel ever in the pacific uh you know he went over to the pacific towards the end of the war and then uh he he was part of the um i guess if you want to call it the giant armada when the japanese surrendered um, he was doing picket duty for that whole uh, entourage of ships. So he was there for that. And then that's where he earned his points to go home was in Japan. Nice. I mean, and, and that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, play a role in the war itself, but to be at a historical event such as the surrender of the Japanese, you know, empire, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. be a, whether you're, you know, just out in the water or patrolling the area, just being in that, you know, in that vicinity is just, it's just crazy to think. Yeah. He, you know, he, um, 
you know, I guess you could say he was fortunate or, or maybe not, but he actually was served in all three theaters. So they they did shore support for the troops going over um, in the south of France in August of '44. They 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 pulled shore support for that, and they like I said they were in North Africa and also in the Pacific. So he got to see it all from from the ocean, but <laughs> oh, you know, he was there. So that's kind of neat, yeah. And that's what that's what got me into it as a kid, you know. And then. Obviously, growing up in the 70s, you know, we would play guns. We called it guns. Yeah, that's what I we think called they, it in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, let's go play guns. And all the kids in the neighborhood, you know, we'd tear up somebody's backyard. And it was kind of like glorified game of um, it. Yep. You know? <laughs> that was back before uh, airsoft and paintball as well. Exactly. You know, where you'd have a little rat-tat-tat plastic Tommy guns you'd get at Kmart or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all, all that kind of stuff fueled it. And then... And then it just kind of went from there. It's mostly a hobby. I'd read a lot. Um, never was much of a collector of things. I mean, I would pick things up here and there. And um, the but the M1 helmet, I, I just ended up settling. I, I don't know. It's hard to describe it. I in my business, I I always warn people that call me that are that are new to this. I say, you know, now be careful because um, there you will get the disease. And so my collector friends and I, we just say. Yeah, that guy's going to have the disease pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. A lot of guys do get the disease. Some of them could care less. They like, particular in the community I'm in with the reenactors. A lot of them just they have it because they need it. But there are a few of us who, who get bitten by the bug. And I yep. saw on your uh, your history that you know you you picked up an M1 helmet along the way, and as you said, you got the disease. Well, that's kind of how I got into this. Uh, my grandfather worked grave registration over in the European theater, but obviously okay. he didn't talk a lot about it. And then, you know, like everybody else in 2000, I saw Band of Brothers and, and you know, mm -hmm. Save a Private Ryan. Well, one day on eBay, for some reason or another, I saw a front seam swivel bell helmet, picked it up. I got it for cheap. It came with a Vietnam liner in it. I was disappointed with that, so I looked around and I found a Westinghouse liner, and I got that. And my first impression was, damn, this thing's heavy, but I also thought it was cool, and the whole idea of living in this thing just blew my mind. And then yeah. I... And then I just sat it in my office, and what I discovered is every time someone came to my house, they'd pick it up. First thing they would say is, damn, this is heavy. But then they would talk about the war for whether it's 10 seconds, a minute, an hour, a half hour. And that's how I mm -hmm. got into this is I realized something as tangible as a helmet that they can feel that sparks an interest. And now, partially thanks to you, because I, I took advantage of your uh, five helmet sale last year. I, I'm, okay. I'm sitting on like seven of them now. When you talk about you know the helmet becoming a conversation piece. Mm-hmm. I've only noticed that there's there's only one other item that'll get a veteran or a service member talking um, on the same level as an M1 helmet. So when I'm at a show or, or if I'm at a collector show or a gun show or anywhere where I have my helmets out, it will always attract um, veterans and, and, and kids. And uh, one of the, the only other thing I've ever had that gets guys talking as much as the M1 helmet is a little P38 can opener. Yeah, and and if you have a, a little pile of those, and you hand them out to veterans, and you know, say, hey, you know, I want you to have this. Thank you for the service. Almost always, they're going to pull out their own keychain, and there's their P38 hooked onto their keychain. It's the only other thing, other than the M1 helmet, that I that I could say will get guys really engaging you, um, you know, to to talk about their time and service, and so. You know, there's definitely something about it. If you if you have a helmet in a room, 
it doesn't matter if it's a doctor or a lawyer or a professor or, or a blue collar guy or anybody, they'll, they'll gravitate right towards it. It's funny that you say that about the can opener because the other thing that I found that's interesting as far as getting a conversation piece, especially when we're doing a living history event, I'll have all these guys with their wall tents set up, their tent flies, their mess tents, all the gear out, and then I'll set up my little uh, pup tent. And that little thing gets so many people's attention just because whether the, there are women who were in the Girl Scouts in the 60s and 70s, they remembered camping in those things. Um, you know, the, okay. the grandmothers, um, the young men who also, you know, they remember playing in their grandfather's pup tent and then the Boy Scout. I always find it interesting how that little shelter half, that pup tent, gathers so much question and familiarity because people like, tell their great-grandchildren, you know, hey, that's what we slept in in the Girl Scouts in the 50s and the Boy Scouts and, you know, clearly Vietnam and war as well. So it's interesting what gath- catches people's attention and, and what kind of is like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how did you get into the restoration of M1 helmets? So, yeah, that that's, that's interesting. Um, other than having, you know, collected them and, and, you know, back in the day, you know, if you if you buy a pistol belt then the guy reaches under the table and he's like, Hey, you want to, you want a helmet too? You know, I'll give it to you free. You know, they just want to hand them away. Um, when I, when I first got into, I would say where I was scouring for helmets and this was long before I ever even thought about, you know, selling them as a, as a business model. Uh, you know, you pick up a helmet and it's missing something like, let's say a little snap in neck band and it's missing and there was just no outlet for it. You know, you, you could maybe pick up a shotgun news and scour through the classifieds and call the surplus stores, you know, all over the place. And you'd call someone and say, hey, I'm looking for some helmet parts. And they might say, oh, you know, Sonny, I had those a long time ago. But, you know, that, that movie Saving Private Ryan came along and I got cleaned out of them right away. And so then I started to notice that you get these incomplete lids and you don't have anywhere to go for the stuff that goes in them. Mm-hmm. And so I used to do what everyone else would do. You know, I'd call at the front and, and beg them, you know, oh, come on, man. You know, I know you got something in the yeah. back corner. These these other vendors that, that have been around for a little while and you always think, you know, they have the secret room full of stuff. Like, you know, like when you go to the fireworks tent, you're like, hey, where's the good stuff? You know? Yeah, where's the M80s at? <laughs> right. Don't but, care about um, the M ninety six. Give me the good stuff. Yeah. So what I I would I would kind of just do like 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 what even what guys do now is you just got you just hunt you look for stuff and then I started to think you know what if the guy was to maybe you know I can find this three quarter inch webbing from you know Leah and Sachs out of Illinois but it's all it's all natural so you know maybe if I mixed up writ dye just right I could you know, douse five yards of it into a bucket and make it, you know, olive drab. And it just kind of, it just kind of went right from there. It was like, almost like a snowball effect. I just like, well, I've got these scraps and I have these snaps. Maybe I can make this or make that because I just couldn't find it. Um, and it just really, that's, that's what drove me is I'm like, I want to complete the helmets that I have. And then, and then when you start doing that, you start making connections and you start realizing, mm-hmm. well, then a guy would say, well, I've got 10 of these. If you have 10 of those and now you're buying and swapping and trading. And, uh, it just developed a helmet community. Um, I think, I think there's always a, 
military collector community, but I don't know if there was always like a helmet specific um, slice of the pie. And I noticed, I, I really think Saving Private Ryan probably was the catalyst for it. Because if you ever went back and watched that movie, I, I mean, I don't know if you would or not, but if you watch it from a helmet perspective, the helmet is so forefront in everything in that film. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that had a, a, a huge impact on people is to really get them almost to where you now have, you know, you've got M1 helmet guys, you know, the guys with the disease, and that's what they want, and that's what they look for. And when you go to a show, there's people that are just rushing through because they're just looking for M1 helmets, M1 helmet parts. You know, do you have anything? Helmet nets. What you got? What you got? And so my thing has always been, well, let's make things that you can use, especially with the reenactor. You know, if ah. you're out reenacting on a, for a weekend and you're wearing a sweatband, you know, how long is that sweatband going to last? Yeah. And so now you're burning up a, you know, they don't make them anymore. So now you're burning up a 70-year-old sweatband a couple times a year, and it's gone. When it's, when it's toasted, it's toasted. Now what do you do? Yeah, and sometimes the older ones, or um, depending on the brand, they kind of almost get like a plasticky form to them. So they actually, mm-hmm. when they start cracking, they dig into your forehead when you're sweating and all that. And, yep. and they can definitely be quite uncomfortable. Did you ever get into the real, uh, reenacting community, or are you just pretty much a collector? You know, I, I, I've i always stayed a, a little bit on the outside of the World War II reenacting um, because, well, my my personal reason is because um, sometimes I'm always carrying a, like a little extra around the midsection. <laughs> I, completely, I, I completely understand I, that. That's actually yeah. part of what causes me to go to the gym is so that I, you know, I can lose that extra weight so I can look a little yeah. better in those photos. So... I, I just, you know, I, I ha- I've had all the uniforms and all the stuff just because of the contacts that I have. You know, I'm talking to somebody who's like, well, I'll set you up with a jumpsuit. And so I've had the boots and everything and the infantry and all that good stuff. But I just never I just never quite um, got into the running around in the woods part of it. But one thing I did do is I did some World War One reenacting. And uh, that was really fun because I knew nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And... And there was nobody that was going to, you know, pester me for, you know, for helmet stuff. I could just, it was like, um, you know, I was just anonymous. I could yeah. go there and reenact World War One, and it was fun. Sure. Uh, there was no business aspect to it at all. So that's that's my exposure to reenacting. I thought that was pretty fun. Now, real quick, going back to uh, Save It Private Ryan, you're talking about how mm-hmm. prevalent the helmet was, not, not only that, but the M1 jacket as well. But a lot of people, when I first hand them the helmet, a little light goes off in her head, and they remember the scene where he's fighting this the German that they had let go previously, and they're having their hand-to-hand combat, and he runs out of ammo, and so he wings his helmet at the at the German, <laughs> yeah. and everybody yeah. realizes now that's why he threw it because this damn thing is like a pan. If you know this getting hit in the head with this is just like your old lady hitting you in the head with a skillet, and they realize sure. why he threw it because when you, when you don't know how heavy it is and you're watching the movie, you're thinking, why the hell did he throw his helmet at? What's that going to do? Knock him out if you oh, hit yeah. him right. Yeah, yeah, I think. What the the M1 helmet um, fully set up weighs, I think, just under or just over three pounds, I believe. Yeah, that's three pounds of hard steel. So let's yeah. let's get into uh, well one one real quick question: How long mm-hmm. did it take you to get down the the skill and the um, 
the technique for uh, applying the corking after you paint the helmet? Or do you mix oh, it yeah, in with your that, paint? Yeah. So, um, yeah, if, if I if I had a nickel for every time I, I had a guy ask me that question, I, I don't think I'd ever have to restore a helmet again. <laughs> um, I, 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 when it comes to, te- you know, cause so the M1 helmet, um, for your, for your listeners, you know, they, they textured mm-hmm. and so they, they textured them because it would knock down the reflective quality. So if you're, if your helmet is wet and you're in the moonlight and it has this cork texture on it, it has a tendency to kind of dull it down just a little bit so it's not so shiny. That's the whole idea behind it. And it's crazy and that so, they thought about that during the production of the M1 helmet, but it took them two mm-hmm. years to realize having Marines wearing white T-shirts in the Pacific, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you know, we're not... We're not we're not having a, a discussion about army logic, are we? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, corking a helmet when I when I first when I first got going on helmets, I tried everything, everything, um, even even down to buying um, and mixing like drywall mud. You know, if you look at an office wall or sometimes in your home, you know, there's that the little texture on the wall, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, that kind of looks like cork. So, I mean, I've tried it all. And I, I remember, I have a specific memory when I first started doing helmets. I, I went to a hobby store and bought um, a great big giant cork, chunk of like cork, like a giant cork stopper. And I, I went home and I fired up a, um, a belt sander. And I put the belt sander down, like I nestled it between my legs. I kneeled down on the floor and put the belt sander in between my legs, pointing at the corner and I laid out a big piece of paper, and I took that cork stopper and and started running it across the belt sanding belt so that it would make it um, like cork dust. I've tried grinding it in a coffee maker, <laughs> tried wow. it all, and that's not even trying to apply it to a sure. helmet. So, you know, speed things up a little bit for sake of time. I I've stippled it where I put the cork in paint and then I take like a, a big round brush and dip it in the paint and then stipple, you know, dab, 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 dab the helmet. Sure. Um, and then cork has a tendency to find itself. So that would make it look like someone, you know, took the helmet and threw it in kitty litter. Yeah. And I just was never satisfied with it. And I, I, I'm like, well, you're not going to ever spray cork through a modern Buffalo gun, there's spray no way. Gun system. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. So I thought, all right. So I went in the house and I raided my wife's spice cupboard and I grabbed a basil jar, which is funny because after all these years, I think that was um, about 15 years ago, I still have the same shaker. I've never swapped it out. I'm kind of a creature of habit. And I emptied out the basil into a baggie, and I put uh, the ground cork in it, and then I just shook it on there kind of like you're putting uh, Parmesan cheese on a slice of pizza. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I, I just perfected the um, technique so that when the cork floats down onto the helmet, it looks good. And so I know in, I know in World War II they, they figured out a way to, to blow it through a, through a, uh, you know, a siphon feed gun, but... I'm not there. Never could figure it out. And, you know, and after all these years, if you did try to replace that basil shaker, it wouldn't feel right. You'd probably have to start no. from ground zero. Just if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of the KISS system. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Can I yep. we d- dig into M1 helmets a little deeper, if you don't mind? 
I just have a few sure. questions. As someone who is trying to take in all this information, let's talk defix bail, or let's start with the beginning. What version of the M1 helmet did they start with? Clearly, it was the front seam, but it was the fixed bail, correct? Yep. So the the M1 helmet, when it was designed, um, the 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 chin straps of the helmet, um, you know, they have to be attached somehow. So on the left and right side of the helmet, they would weld um, a little loop, um, but it was kind of like well, if you had a if you took the shape of a rectangle rectangle and cut it lengthwise, mm-hmm. um, that's what the chin strap loop looks like, and then it's just welded to the side of the helmet, and then you can slide the strap through and sew it on, and, and boom, you're done. You've got you know you have your chin strap anchored. And it's uh, a, it's pretty much like a 16 gauge steel, yeah. is it not? It's a, yeah, it's wire. It's a it's it's a it's bent wire, and you know the, the left and right side are bent on a 90 degree angle, and then the end of the wire uh, that attaches to the helmet is crimped to kind of make a foot, and then they just tack weld it, you know, spot weld it to the helmet. Um, that was the first version uh, of the M1 helmet, and, and they really got them started. And let's just say, for keeping things easy, easy to discuss, and like let's say. 1942, they really started rolling out the M1 helmet big time, and that's that was the helmet. That's what they made. Um, then they they obviously they had to kind of um, come up with a plan for airborne helmets because they were realizing, well, we've got these two, and we need to find a way to slip the chin strap through that helmet because it's a little the the chin strap itself is a little different, and they couldn't they couldn't slide the chin, the airborne strap through that little fixed bale um, efficiently, so they came up with what we call the B-ring or the M2. And, and, and then I think from there they're like, well, we need to make this more universal. And so that's when we went with the swivel bale, um, which helmet guys will know all this, but people who, you know, you have to remember a lot of people, they look at a helmet and it's a helmet, and that's all they need to know. And that's all they want to know. Absolutely, um, these are kind of the things that people with the disease that we talked about they start to kind of, um, kind of uh, zone in on, and that's you know these these things become relevant. Not to interrupt, but yeah. part of the reason I'm going down this road is not only do we interview World War II vets and talk about World War II, um, a big part of this podcast is living history and World War II reenacting, and so mm-hmm. I know a lot of my listeners, especially the new guys. When they go to an event and someone asks them, is that a front seam, rear seam, blah, 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 I'm kind of using this as an educational tool to help inform some of the new guys. Sure. And so just okay. for jargon for some people, when we say front seam, basically on the helmet, the way they pressed it into the bowl or pot, if you will, they basically put mm-hmm. a band of steel around the brim. In early mm-hmm. days, the seam, or where the two ends mm-hmm. met, were in the front. And then later on, they, for some reason, they stamped it in the back. I'm sure you know that reason. But when you hear people yep. say front seam or rear seam, it's all where the little gap is in the band on the brim of the helmet. Perfect, perfectly explained. And and actually, that's exactly how it was explained to me when I when I first started getting into helmets myself. Um, I went over to a to a buddy's house who was a collector, and I you know I've got these helmets I picked up at a show, and I go, tell me about them. And he would say, well, if, you know, when you're looking for a World War II helmet, if, if you want to know for sure that you have a World War II helmet, you look at the, the brim of the helmet, like you said, that protective edge, and, the, and it'll form a butt or a joint in the front of the helmet. Um, and that's how you know you have a World War II helmet, because they stopped making them that way 
um, in, 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 in about the fall of 1944. After that, they went rear-seamed, which is where the, the protective rim joins in the back, and they stayed that way um, all, all the way up until 1983 when they stopped making the M1 helmet. Yeah, because, I mean, at that point they had the UN was using them. I mean, everybody's using the M1 helmet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, there are rules. So if you have a fixed bail helmet and it's, and it's real, it's going to be a front seam. Mm-hmm. You know, because that, that, that's just, they, they quit making um, fixed bail helmets in 43. I mean, really, they only ran them for about a year and a half. Obviously, you said they switched to the swivel because of the chin straps. But I would also assume at some point these guys were sitting their helmets down on the ground and sitting on them. The bales were probably getting bent up the way it was. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure silly yeah. stuff like that happened all the time. Oh, yeah. See, because if you, you know, it's a podcast, so we don't have any visual aid. But if you have a swivel bale helmet, or even if you're listening and you have one, if you tell you, you know, obviously you can pivot the chin, where the chin strap sews on or clips on, it pivots left and right. Mm-hmm. And what that allows it is if it hits the ground in that, in that, uh, is it would the word be perpendicular? If it, if the if yes. the bale is standing straight up off the helmet and it hits the ground, it should it should pivot so that it doesn't snap off. And I really think that you know, not trying to overcomplicate it, but I really think that was the whole catalyst for for developing a swivel loop is longevity. Yeah, absolutely. And it also gives us the option to do the cool thing where we put the chin strap behind the brim. Mm-hmm. What, Absolutely. What can you tell me about Holly liners? Am I even saying so, that right? Sometimes it's a little bit of a tongue twister. So it's Holly. Holly. Okay. And it's in, yeah, it's interesting because my stepbrother, his last name is Holly. <laughs> so it's kind of neat. So it's H A W L E Y Holly. Okay. And um, it's not you know it's not like Holly like um, you know deck the halls with boughs of Holly. Um, the 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 holly liner or the paper liner um, you could call it the paper liner too if you want those those are made for a little while as as the they again were the they were the only helmet liner uh, until they went over to you know the Pacific and they started and the marines <laughs> and the marines were like um, so my helmet liner literally disintegrated the minute that I hit the beach because you know the humi- I mean their clothes would rot off so. Yep. What's gonna What's gonna happen to a helmet that's made out of pressed paper, and the only thing keeping it together is you know a fabric overlay and paint on the inside. So, <laughs> the the Holly liner was short lived, which makes it you know is the reason that it's so highly sought after to collectors, well, um, especially the ones that are in excellent condition because they just they do not hold up. Well, that answers my next question because I recently got a Holly brand pith helmet. And okay. I was going to ask yep. you if the liners were simply just the the fiberglass with the coating on it, if they were made out of that cardboardish material that my pith helmet's made from, and you just answered that mm-hmm. question. Yep. But that also yep. leads so. me into another thought: is mm-hmm. as you said, they were the only liner at the time. I wonder if they were the only liner manufactured at the time because they already had the contract to make the pith helmets. I mean, it would only kind of make sense to say, "Hey, we." Yeah, can- and yeah, absolutely. And when when Holly, um, when they started making the M1 helmet liner, they they couldn't keep up. And so they subcontracted with General Fiber, and thus so another company, General Fiber, was making them as well. But although General Fiber could make the liner body, they didn't. They were not able to um, install the webbing. So every every General Fiber liner was just shipped straight to the McCord 
helmet plant, and actually the the people at McCord put the put the the web kits in them. So that's kind of interesting. They were made they were made here, you know, they were made at point A, shipped to point B where they were finished. A lot of people don't know that. And Holly Holly made their own liners from from start to finish, but General Fiber couldn't. I gotcha. Um, so at the same time, to keep up with demand, that's when they came up with the low-pressure liner, which is your hood rubber and your St. Clair. I don't know if you're familiar with those. No, I'm not. Okay. As far as helmet liner production goes, you've got your paper liner, and the paper liner failed miserably, so they're like, well, we got to come up with something else. So then they went with the, a low-pressure liner, which is made out of fabric and it's pressed, and, and two companies made those, St. Clair and hood rubber and so you've got those three those are the three helmet liners that were being produced very early in world war ii all three of them were deemed basically unusable not fit for combat so that's when they came up with the high pressure liner which is like your lasting house um or or you know a, a typical world war ii liner uh you know that's where they came up with that idea and it was basically just a spin-off of the low pressure liner just more rigid and it and it had more more strength to it who were the major manufacturers of the high pressure liner at that time during you know from 40 what 43 yeah, to so, 45 yep so high pressure liners came on pretty quick they actually started making them already in 1942 okay uh so the the first companies to roll out high pressure liners would be Westinghouse, Mine Safety Appliance, and Inland. And, you know, a lot of the listeners will go, oh, yeah, Inland, because they also make carbines. Okay. And so, yeah, because the, and because of their demand to make, to make carbines, they actually gave up their contract to make helmet liners. So Inland helmet liners are another one of those things that collectors kind of go nuts for because they're out there. They're not, I wouldn't say they're rare, but they're, you know, they're of the harder variety to find. Yeah, the other neat thing about Inland is, is they also had a lot of their liners were converted for airborne use. So, um, you know, the very first jump liners um, were made by Hawley and were made by Inland. Now, I know the Westinghouse uh, maker's mark is a W with an underscore under it. Yep. If someone was looking for an Inland um, or a Hawley, well, Hawley, obviously, you know what it looks like because the damn thing's cardboard, but if someone was looking for an Inland, what's their maker's mark look like? So an Inland liner in, in the crown where you would normally see, like, your W for Westinghouse, it'll, it'll actually spell out Inland, and then it kind of has a crest um, outline. Uh, so it'll say inland, and then it has kind of a crusty-looking outline to it. Um, it's it's their logo. So if a guy was to go on Google and type in inland logo, I'm sure in the images, you know, images view, you'd find it immediately. The other company, um, <clears throat> Firestone, picked up the inland contract. So if you've ever had a, a helmet liner made by Firestone, and we know they, you know, they make tires and rubber products, mm-hmm. um, you're gonna see the F for Firestone stamped in that liner. Well, while we're on the subject, because um, I mm-hmm. would be doing myself a great disservice by having you not on here and benefiting from it other than having you on my show, I got three um, high-pressure liners. Two of them are Westinghouse, one's a Firestone. Do you, uh, clearly you know the, the difference between the liners, but are you well-versed enough that you could tell generally what year they came out by the, the numbers associated with them? Okay, so, sure. So For example, you, I got a Westinghouse D26. When you when you see that D twenty six, what you're looking at is you're not looking at a date per se. 
you're looking at the the mold number. So the the mold that made that liner was mold D twenty six. Okay. So if you see um, uh, in you might see Firestone and it might have a a number. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. But, uh, Inland Inland would have a number. Well, the Firestone has the Firestone trademark F. Then above it has a sixty four, and below the F it has a one hundred three. Yep. So that's that's your mold number. What an interesting thing about the helmet liner mold is they belong to the government. They belong to the um, I, I always want to say Defense Department, but we know that's not what it was called back then. Uh, and it wasn't even the Quartermaster Corps. I I just can't think of what. And it's funny because my buddy tells me all the time, he's like, "This is what it was." And I <laughs> it's just one of those things that doesn't settle in. But but yeah the 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 mold that helmet liners were made on were given to the company to use, and then you know in some way shape or form they were collected back when their contract ended, and and if you want to this is this is kind of a deep deep thing, but if you fast forward to the Korean War, when you see a liner made by Mine Safety Appliance, it was not made by Mine Safety Appliance. It was it was that the the government gave the old mold back to Micarta or back to Westinghouse Electric and they made their liner on that mold with their stamp already on it, right? And so there was some effort, obviously, to get rid of those stamps, but not so much so that you know it, it, you every once in a while you'll see a, a Korean War era helmet liner that says Mine Safety Appliance and you're like whoa what's this <laughs> but it wasn't made by them it was made by somebody else so that's kind of interesting um that back back to your original question is how to date a helmet liner um those numbers have nothing to do with date they just have to do with mold number the the best way to to um date a helmet liner is you look at the sum of its parts. So if you have a if you have a helmet liner and the webbing is held into the helmet liner with let's say bare steel, those little A-shaped washers and they're bare steel, you know that's an early helmet liner because that's the first type of hardware that they use. Uh, and then if you see one that's set with olive drab painted A-washers, you know that's about a mid-war helmet liner because they went from bare steel rusting out to like we have to coat this, so let's paint it. And then the later war helmet liners were where they went with brass parts. And so that's the best way to kind of narrow down a helmet liner, if, if that's important to you, is is you look at kind of what held the webbing in. What about the uh, the eyelet for the rank? I know a lot of the early Westinghouse had that hole in the front, so you could put you know. Yep. When did they stop doing that? Uh, the, 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 the eyelet for the rank went away, I believe in about 1956, maybe 1958, somewhere, somewhere after. So a lot of Korean war liners are still going to have the eyelet. And then when they, they kind of stopped production for a while and they started back up in the late fifties through about 1963, so if you if you were to just be general generally speaking, let's say from fifty eight to sixty three, helmet liners made in that time period did not have that front eyelet. So it's safe to say that if you have a Westinghouse or a Firestone, it does not have that eyelet, then it's post Korean. 
it's safe to say it's not it's not uh it's not a commandment um because i have seen i i have had a lot of world war ii helmet liners with no eyelet um but usually those are all those are some type of a reject uh they're a reject liner now i've seen through your instagram page and your facebook page Mm -hmm. that you are starting you have been doing some netting that with the white netting is that who when was that done and who primarily used the white netting instead of the olive drab uh, so when you say when you say the netting, say, the sweatband. Mean by, oh, the sweatband. Yeah, on the inside. Okay. Yep. So the the sweatband. Um, you have to go all the way back to the to the beginning stages of production with when we were talking about the Holly liner. So am I am I tracking right? The Holly the Holly liner the first yep. pattern of the Holly liner had that kind of whitish rayon webbing in it. And that's what the sweatbands are made out of that too, and they snapped in. There was so there was um, twelve snaps that went around the border of the helmet liner, and then there were obviously where the the male part of that snap on the sweatband, and they would snap in. Because what the, what the what they did is they stole the idea for the helmet liner webbing. They they got it from a football helmet. So the the Rydell football helmet. Had, uh, from the 40s has a very similar suspension. If you were to see an old vintage football helmet and you're like, "Hey, that kind of looks familiar," um, the the you know the Army Corps or again, I, I apologize. Um, they kind of took that idea and they implanted it into the helmet liner uh, in the beginning. That's why the, the earliest helmet liners all have that whitish gray uh, webbing in it. Real sure. quick, uh, ignore the noise. I'm going to pick up my helmet here real quick. Okay. Now, once again, through your Instagram page, I've seen some of your photos of some of the liners you've gotten that you know were painted up in the '70s with "Peace, Love," and all that silliness. Yeah. Um, what's one of the craziest things you've ever seen anybody do to a liner? To a liner, let's see. Once again, I was in a. Um, I got all these helmets, but I only had two high-pressure liners, and so I've been scouring, and I came across one, and I actually won the auction on it, and I got it mm-hmm. for pretty cheap. But apparently this thing at some point was used, whether for a TV show, a, a movie prop, or what have you. It's actually, it's the um, the Westinghouse I was telling you about. Yeah. And they designed it to look like an airborne liner. But as you look at it, the leather chin strap is not a chin strap. It's just a chunk of leather that's sewn to the webbing around the sweatband. Okay. And, and then they took the, um, the airborne style chin strap, instead of actually fixing it behind the post on the webbing, they also sewed that to the sweatband, and then they put super glue on it. And the weird thing about them using the leather strap is this liner does have the post for the correct chin strap, but I'm I'm assuming that it was probably just cheaper to, to uh, glue this this leather Must strap been, on. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you might have some type of a of a prop of a prop helmet of some kind, maybe even for a theater production. Um, usually, the movie prop helmets there's a little more effort put into them to make them durable. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if this might have been like uh, maybe local theater or something like that. Well, um, I, I, when I put it in my front seam helmet and actually put the leather, it from a distance it looks it looks you know kind of like the real deal. And so yeah, it could be for a local theater or it may just been somebody in the background of a low budget movie wearing it. You know, just a non oh you know a non yeah. acting just somebody in the background running through the trees. I mean, obviously if they're running through, you see the leather strap over the brim and you see the chin strap hanging down. Obviously, you're not going to to look on the inside so they did a pretty 
pretty good job on it. I almost hate to tear it apart just because I like the novelty of it being a movie prop, but I really need yeah, that liner. Yeah, no, that's kind of neat. Yeah, I'm I'm racking my brain trying to think of kind of the strangest thing uh, that I, the strangest type of helmet or, or modification that I've had in here. One time I took in, uh, I was doing a job for a large prop company out of um, North Hollywood there, and they sent me, they sent me 600 helmet liners to restore, and they said, okay, here's 600 helmet liners. We want 300 of them back, and you can keep the other 300 for your, for your inventory, and that was part of the deal that we worked out. Hell yeah. And, and in, that, in that mix of 600 helmet liners, <laughs> I, I can't even begin to tell you all, all the strange modifications that, that came out of that because... You have to you have to go all the way back to the fifties and the sixties. So you remember in the you know when 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 we'll just say pop culture in the fifties when it switched from cowboys and Indians to science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I've never done this, but it would be interesting to do it. Is is maybe go back and and on YouTube and and pull up some of those old science fiction TV shows um, because I'm telling you. A lot of these helmet liners had to have been used in some of those TV shows because they would be painted like silver, like a shiny silver, not quite chrome, but just kind of, kind of like um, not a like patent, think but tin, a, but a yeah, more like generic think Tin Man, like Wizard of Oz Tin Man, I gotcha. like silver, and then they would have these great big giant foam combs um, <laughs> on the top to kind of make them look like uh, something out of a science fiction film and. And I remember, I, I this was before you know we smartphones weren't a thing, so it wasn't easy to just you know quickly snap pictures and post them to somewhere. So I don't have any photographs of this stuff. I wish I did. Um, but these these great big giant like like uh, almost like if you were to turn it into like a Roman helmet of some kind. Yeah. And I kept thinking like, what are these things for? And so that's one of the weird things that that I've seen as far as a, a modification done for. Uh, some other purpose. Um, other than that, you've got your aggressor helmets. I see those come in every once in a while. So stateside training when they're playing war games, uh, sometimes the aggressors on the helmet, they'll have great big giant combs riveted into them um, just to make them look completely different so that you could identify that person. As, so they're breaking up the silhouette know, of the soldier th- yep, running through the woods. Yep. Um, as far as um, field modifications of like actual GI helmets where they were used in the field and, and something happened and they had to be repaired, uh, one of the most interesting things I've, I've had is a, a, a helmet liner was, had, must have suffered an impact and it had a giant crack in it. And what the guy did is he poked little holes down each side of the crack and then he took some really thin wire and he actually stitched it like if you were to stitch a wound. He actually stitched up the helmet that's, crack. That's crazy. With wire to strengthen it so he could stuff it back in his helmet. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, that would have been a great um, photo there. And as yeah. you were saying, the old sci-fi, I don't know if, I'm sure if you've gone back and seen it, what, Aliens, the second Aliens, mm-hmm. all the uh, Space Marine, they basically had modified M1 helmets on. You're right. They did, and Rogue One, they used uh, M1 helmets too. Yep. most recently. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, some of the reenactors who are getting into the uh, 
Rogue One Star Wars cosplay. They're happy that you know that's one less thing they got to buy because they can just modify oh. one of their spare helmets. Yep. When yep. Captain America, uh, the first one came out, did you get a lot of uh, calls for some blue helmets? I absolutely did. Yep. I've I've done a few, maybe about a half a dozen. You you know the the Captain America, um, the one where where Bucky comes back as kind of he kind of plays the villain. Okay. What was that one? That was um. Was that Winter Soldier? Yeah, Winter Soldier. So my phone rings one day, um, and it's this it's this person on a on a movie set, and this person is panicking because they need an M1 helmet. Um, they're on location, and we need an M1 helmet for the scene, and we don't have one. And I'm like, well, I'm like, I'm in Wisconsin, and you're in Hollywood. So what do you want to do about this? <laughs> so, um, I FedExed. Uh, next day, as fast as FedEx will move a box is the service that we chose. I FedExed the helmet over to them so that they could use it, and I never asked what for because a lot of times you just you, you don't waste your time doing that because they either can't say or they're just in a hurry. Yep. And so it, I had to wait to go see the movie because I'm like, all right, what was this helmet for? And lo and behold, in that scene where Captain America is going through the museum and he's looking at his his uniform and it's behind glass like yep. uh like it's a display and there's an m1 helmet sitting on top well that's it and it was in the movie for about four seconds and i just think that's funny now was it an airborne <laughs> with the airborne liner or just it, the infantry no liner? it wasn't it wasn't i just I, I i said i said to the person i'm like look i go if you want to if you want to do this i'm just going to grab something off the shelf and stick it in a box and they're like yeah, yeah that's that's totally fine so yeah, because I a lot of your them, stuff, uh, a lot of your stuff belongs to other people, right? I mean, you do a whole lot of restoration for other people. Is that correct? Oh yeah, I've I have. Um, oh yeah, there's always restoration work coming and going out of here. Absolutely. Yep, that's uh, that's one of the things that I that I've always um, tried to maintain is being able to do restorations for guys like yourself. So you're you're out in the field playing around doing your reenactment and for some reason you blow out the webbing in your helmet liner well if you want you know you can send it over here and and we'll work it in and we'll get it fixed up for you it's something i've always done even most recently now i i tried it out last fall as i took my i took a mini version of my shop with me to a show and set up my bar tacker and my rivet press and i I did a on-the-spot helmet repair for reenactors, and mm-hmm. that that went over really well. They really appreciated not having the weight and yeah. that kind of a thing. Well, I actually have one. I'll probably be sending to you. I was at a friend's house at the time. I only had one high-pressure liner, and I had that was right after I got all those helmets from you. And I'm like, oh, I need liners. And I was at a friend's house, and up on the shelf was a liner that was probably painted white in the '60s, and had a Boy Scout logo on the front of it. Now. They must have. Okay. They must have done this at their at their meeting because they. When you turn it over, basically they had masking taped the netting and then painted it. So inside of it's painted. It was real hard to find the Westinghouse stamp on it. And I was like, "Well, how much you want for that liner?" He's like, "Take it." So he gave it to me for free, and I and I popped it in one of my helmets. But the oh, um, cool. part of the sweatband where the nape strap is hooked to, it's all dry rotted and ripped out on me. So I'll probably be sending that one to you to have a uh, media blasted and uh and redone. I was going to let you go, but I just came up with another question. When you media blast stuff, are you using walnut? What do you use to get the paint off of these things? You know, I mentioned this earlier is my KISS system. I like to keep it simple, stupid. What I do is the, the media that I use for my helmets, once it gets dull, 
and kind of gets a little too powdery to cut through the helmet um, paint, I keep it and then I throw it in the cabinet and use it on helmet liners and it's perfect. It doesn't it doesn't chew up the helmet liner at all. And um, it's it surprises people a lot that I actually will sandblast the helmet liner, but it works really well and it's really quick. Do you put um, a new uh, clear coat on it? Uh, so what I do what I do with them is I actually just hit it with a fast drying primer, and that kind of re I guess it reseals it, and then you can buff it with a sponge or something like that to kind of knock it back down. And that's what I do when I rebuild it. You follow my Instagram page, and you probably you probably. Uh, have seen pictures of my stuff up on the workbench where I'm like, well, this liner's not quite done yet, and you're like looking at it, going, well, it's green, and uh, you know that's that that's that base coat that you see that I put on it before I put my finish paint. One more question for you, Joshua. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever, what other large scale uh, war productions have you provided helmets for? Oh, uh, you mean like a like a movie production? Yeah, whether it's movie, a miniseries. Um, I mean, you've been doing this for eighteen years now. I'm sure yeah. you've supplied a few um, of them. Yeah, I back in, I think it was. Let's see. I, I I used when I moved into this shop. I I moved into this shop in the in January of two thousand five, and I think it was a year later. So let's just say about the spring of '06. Uh, I did a hundred fixed bale helmets for the miniseries uh, The Pacific, which was on HBO. Yep, great series. Yep, and so in the you know and and I thought to myself, well, this is neat because number one, it was a, it was good business. I was happy to do it. I mean, a hundred helmets all to one mm-hmm. guy. I mean, woo, you know, you're like cha-ching, yep. day. Um, I mean, that's nice. But then I thought, well, yeah, my helmets are going to be in a ma- you know a major HBO miniseries. And then after like the third episode, they all got covered with helmet covers. <laughs> yep. So I was like, ah, oh, bummer. But you can definitely make out my if you if you go through um, the first couple episodes Guadalcanal. and you look at the helmets, you'll be like, oh yeah, that does look like his because my corking is so, you know, the, my my texturing is so unique to myself that you can kind of you can spy it out when you even if you're at an event. Um, I can pick out a helmet of mine just because of the way it textured. Yeah, I never noticed when I'm watching the movie, but I saw a still frame from the episode from Guadalcanal, and Robert Leckie actually has, I'm assuming, a reproduction Holly, uh, Holly liner on his helmet. Um, have you ever toyed around with making those liners, whether it's just um, coating I, a, a you know a fiberglass liner or just to give it the thick brim to give people the appearance for their Marine Corps impressions? Yeah, you know, there's there's a couple guys that make a really nice poly um repro using a, a standard liner and they kind of build it up um i've never done that um partly because i i don't know how and the other idea that of mine is well if i'm ever going to do that i want to do it i want to build it i want it to be a holly liner sure. as close as i can get it to being one is what i want to do so throughout the years i've pursued it three different times and i can never get it to the point where i'm satisfied with it so i i wouldn't say i've given it up um but it's definitely a back burner because i just can't i can't get it past the point of having someone convincingly stretch the fabric onto the outside of the shell and i know that seems like a silly little detail but if to me that's what makes the holly liner the holly liner and if i can't get it right then i'm just not going to do it 
and that's kind of where it's stuck. Well, and then, and that's the um, standard that's gotten your business to where it is today. You know, you you put out the best product that you can, and and it's a damn fine product, and you know, and that's why people come to you because you know there's plenty of places to get poorly reproduced helmets at all over the place, and you know, and that's why people come to you because they want quality quality craftsmanship well, yeah. and somebody who stands by their work. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I guess uh, you know, you know that that saying in the video. My son uses it all the time. He's when I'm playing. Uh, if I'm playing Battlefield with him, he'll always, "Dad, you're such a tryhard." <laughs> 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 he goes, "You're such a tryhard," and I'm like, "What Nothing does that mean?" That. And he goes, "Well, it's not a compliment." And I'm like, "Well, well, I try hard at work. I mean, that's that's a good thing, right?" <laughs> what were you doing well, before you uh, went, you know, a hardcore helmet all the time? Um, so, so before, before I was, uh, before I was making the helmets, um, I was a, I, I was a, not a chef because I was never properly trained, trained, but I was working in a restaurant under chefs and kind of working the line. So I was a line cook. Um, and then I also, I also did a stint with, uh, as a youth pastor, okay. uh, for about four years of my life. And, and I was a youth pastor and I also, that's where, in that time, is also where I, I, I was, I became married and started a family. And then I, and then I got that bug that we talked about. Um, and I started to kind of move towards M1 helmets. And so I thought, you know what? I think I can make a go of this. Um, some other things I've done is my wife and I had, we had, uh, a lot of rental properties too. And that would, when I first started doing helmets, I would, I would do, helmets for a couple days then i would do rental projects and then i would do helmets and eventually i found myself doing helmets 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 rental and so i just kind of switched and now I'm, i've been at it full time for 15 15 years almost 16 years full time and in it since i want to say about 2000 yeah time flies by odd. i mean i started yep. my computer business 15 years ago and it seems like it was just yesterday but as someone who isn't was, it, isn't it crazy? Yes, it I, is. I've got customers who weren't even born when I started doing this, which is awesome because you know you always wonder, well, is this even going to be a thing? Do people even care? Yeah. Um, and I've noticed through Instagram, my audience on Instagram is much younger than my Facebook audience or even my core customer group. Um, but these these guys are my average Instagram guys, thirteen years old to twenty four. So thirteen to twenty four. Yeah, a lot of the um, um, a lot of the older crowd is still on Facebook. Um, obviously, through yep. my podcast, I also work in radio, terrestrial radio in the afternoon. I also have a computer firm, and all this stuff. But definitely, I get more followers on Facebook, and they tend to be a wider range of uh, people. But I also mm -hmm. find on Facebook people a little uh, people are a little more serious, whereas on Instagram and Twitter, well, Twitter's gotten so political I don't even go on there anymore. But um, as far as Instagram goes, you can be a little more um, playful and just you know people don't get all bent out of shape as easily on Instagram, and it's no, definitely a younger no. crowd. Yeah, I I I I kicked um I kicked well I kicked against social media just as a general rule, but my my wife got me going on Instagram about a year ago. And I never looked back. And, and I, I, I promote Instagram constantly to people because it's so, it's so, so simple. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you post a picture, you talk about it a little bit, and then you just kind of put it out there and people can see it and they can interact with what it is. And it, it never goes over the top. 
Whereas, as you were saying, you know, on Facebook, things things have a tendency to go from zero to 100 miles an hour, like, and you're like, whoa, what just happened? And so I kind of like Instagram as a platform. Um, and again, as I was saying, um, it's a younger, it's a younger audience and they're the, they're the guys and girls that are really into this, uh, you know, this avenue of, of military and reenacting. And it's encouraging because I just don't think it's ever going to go away. I don't think, I don't think collecting and in the helmet genre and the reenacting and in the interest in history, I think it's here to stay. God willing, because obviously they they don't teach it that much in the schools. They teach for testing, and that's about it. Joshua, mm-hmm. thank you so much. Um, yeah. Jo- it's uh, jmurrayinc1944.com. What's your Instagram? My Instagram is the same. It's If, if you type in jmurrayinc1944, it'll pop up. You know, it's got the dots in it, like j.murrayinc.1944. But if you just type it in there, you'll find us. Fantastic. Hey, keep up the live stream. Keep painting the smiley faces on the wall of your paint booth, and uh, <laughs> I'll be watching. All right, sounds good. Take care. And so I hope you enjoyed the interview uh, with Joshua and learning all the things about the M1 helmet. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be joined by living historian and fellow reenactor, Mike Blowski. We are going to talk a little bit about the Pacific, but more importantly, we are going to try to recruit some more people for the big Tarawa anniversary event up in Alabama on November 2nd. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back.